We come to a very important chapter in our study of the Gospel according to Matthew. Um, Chapter 10 of this particular Gospel is very fascinating. I believe it teaches us some very important examples to follow. Uh, but it's a, passage, uh, this, it's a passage that we need to interpret very carefully. You know, there are many instructions in it that are intended for a specific group on a specific occasion and for a specific purpose. And we, shouldn't, uh, we wouldn't be treating the passage wisely if we try to apply everything that it says to ourselves today. Uh, I've often reminded you in our study of God's Word that we need to make sure we look at the context and make sure that uh, we know what's happening. And I trust that is something we want to pay attention to here as well. And to help us appreciate this, let's look at this chapter in terms of the broader context of Matthew's Gospel. Remember, Matthew began by introducing us to Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, back way back in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, that sets the tone uh, for this gospel. It's a very Jewish gospel account. It concerns itself with the long-awaited king of Israel who was promised to come from the lineage of David, King David, and in fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. And that's why the wise men came saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? Back in Matthew chapter 2. But as we move along through Matthew's gospel, we see how this promised king was introduced through the ministry of John the Baptist. And then we read how that this king taught the principles of his kingdom to his subjects in the Sermon on the Mount. And then after preaching that sermon, he proved his authority by performing miracles and wonders and All of these would show that he truly was the promised king of the Jews. But now we come to chapter 10, and we see that Jesus, the long-awaited promised king of the Jews, calls 12 of his disciples together and commissions them to go out and proclaim to the Jewish people. He sends them out to the lost sheep of Israel, it says. And he tells them to preach the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so as we've emphasized before, the things that we read in this chapter are understood in the context of the introduction of the king to his people. And after his instructions to them are completed, we're told in Matthew chapter 11 and verse 1, and it came to pass when Jesus had made an end of commanding his twelve disciples, he departed thence to teach and to preach in their cities. And so it was Jesus' plan to send his twelve disciples out to announce that this kingdom is at hand, and then to follow them uh, after them and preach in the cities to which he had sent them. Now in verses 1 through 15, he gives us uh, his commission to the twelve apostles. They were to go out and preach strictly to the Jewish people. And what he says in those beginning verses applies particularly to them and to their ministry. And the king that they proclaimed would be rejected, of course, by the Jewish people. 
And so what Jesus says in the rest of the chapter has to do with the ministry of Jesus' followers after he was crucified, raised, and ascended to the Father. It speaks here of our ministry of proclaiming the King, not only to the Jewish people, but throughout the Gentile world. What Jesus says in the latter half of chapter 10 began to be fulfilled in what we find in the book of Acts. It was there that he told his disciples, but ye shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. Now this morning, then, I'd like for us to focus just on these first 15 verses of this chapter where Jesus gives what I would call foundational instructions to the foundational preachers of His kingdom. And again, I remind you that as Christians, we cannot keep silent about Jesus Christ. Look at what Jesus said. Look down in verse 32 and 33 of chapter 10. It says, Whosoever therefore shall confess me before men, him will I confess also before my Father which is in heaven. But whosoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my Father which is in heaven. We are to be unashamed and unintimidated by the growing secular pressures of our culture today. And we are to boldly confidently and lovingly proclaim Jesus Christ. He's the Son of God. He's the Savior of the world. Now, we should never become hostile or offensive in doing so, but neither should we shrink back from faithfully confessing Jesus and letting those who might take offense at Him hear of Him anyway. Now, I suggest to you that these first 15 verses give us great encouragement in making such a faithful witness to the world. The situation of Jesus' commission to the twelve in this chapter does not necessarily apply to us, but Jesus' words to them nevertheless have some great lessons here for us as well. Great lessons to teach us. His words show us how that Foundational messengers of the kingdom of Jesus Christ were called to do their job and to do so before a people who by and large would not receive their message. So let's look at this passage verse by verse and as we do, let's first notice who was sent. Who was sent? Verse 1. And when he had called to him his twelve disciples, he gave them power against unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all matter of sickness and all manner of disease. Now the names of the twelve apostles are these. The first Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew his brother, James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the publican, James the son of Alphaeus and Labaius, whose surname was Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. There's so much that we could say about these 12 men, but I'm quite sure I could preach probably a whole sermon on each one of them. But for now, just take notice of them as a group. 
They are really not very re remarkable men. Not by this world's standards anyway. But Jesus called them to himself, and because he did, they, were to go, they would go on and change the world. By the way, for those of you that are studying thrice-trumpeted truths, they are organized into three teams. And they're also sent out by twos. Uh, Peter, Philip, and James, the son of Alphaeus, headed up these three groups. And our text pairs them in twos as well, uh, which we can assume were the way they were sent out to do their mission into Galilee. Just think that's an interesting sidelight there for our adult Sunday school class. But first of all, notice they were called to be students. They were called to be students. Notice what they are called. They are called His twelve disciples. To be a disciple is basically to be a student of a teacher. Uh, there were many students under Jesus at this time, but these twelve were the ones He called to Himself for special service. And notice what they are called to be. Jesus tells us that the names of, uh, what the names of the twelve apostles are, and to be an apostle is to be, as the word literally means, a sent one. And he was about to send them out to be his representatives with an authoritative commission to proclaim the kingdom to the Jewish people. Their role as disciples was not unique. Uh, we share that with them today. We can be considered disciples of Jesus Christ because we study Jesus. We study under Him. We study His Word. But their call to be an apostle was unique. In Judas's place, Paul was later called to be an apostle and together the testimony of these twelve concerning the Lord Jesus formed a foundation for the institution of the local church. No one else shared that unique foundation call uh, uh, since then. In other words, if you find someone who's calling themselves an apostle today, forget it. There are no apostles today, okay? This is unique to these men. But the thing to notice is that before they were sent, they were first taught. Before they were apostles, they were disciples. And there's a lesson here for us in that. Before our Savior commissions someone to take uh, to the great work of proclaiming Him, He calls them first to be a student. We cannot effectively be sent ones into this world unless we first spend some time in the school of Christ, sitting at His feet, as it were, getting to know Him and learning from Him and being His disciple. Notice the second thing here, they were given power. They were given power. This too is something quite unique to them. It's the endowment He gave them for their particular ministry. Matthew tells us when He called them, He gave them power against unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all manner of sickness and all manner of disease. Those were the same kinds of things He had been doing we saw that in chapter 4, chapter 8, and chapter 9. 
And in doing them, he was clearly identifying himself as a promised king. And now he sends them out, these twelve, in advance of himself, to announce his kingdom to the cities and the villages of the Jewish people. He gives them the power to do the things that he did. How he gave them that power, we're not really told. But just think of what an unprecedented thing it was that he would do so. Luke tells us they returned to him later with joy, saying, Lord, even the devils were subject unto us through thy name. That must have been an exciting ministry for them. And even after Jesus had ascended to the Father, their authority as his apostles continued to be authenticated by such things as we read in the book of Acts and even in 2 Corinthians. But as unique as this endowment of power and authority was, there is yet another lesson for us in it. God has not given us this unique power, but there is a lesson for us. It's in the Lord's power not only to do these things, but also to give that same power to whomever He wishes for whatever task He calls them to do. Now, we cannot claim divine power to ourselves. It is only ours if given to us by Him and for His purpose. But we can be sure that whatever it may be that He calls us to do in His service, He is able to give us the power and the authority to do it. Some people think, well, no, I can't, I can't do that. I can't serve the Lord. I can't be a teacher. I can't be a preacher. I can't even go and witness. I can't even talk to myself in the mirror. You know, if God's called you to, to do it, He'll give you the power to do it as well. Without Him, I can do nothing, as it says in John chapter 15 and verse 5. But we can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth us. Philippians 4 and verse 13. So we notice here, first of all, who was sent. Secondly, where they went. Where they went. After He called them to be His apostles and endowed them with the power and authority, He didn't command them to go out in the world in general. Rather, He sent them to a very specific field of service. Notice verse 5. These twelve Jesus sent forth and commanded them, saying, Go not into the way of the Gentiles, and into any city of the Samaritans enter ye not. But go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now Jesus calls them lost sheep. And when I read that, I can't help but think what Jesus said at the end of chapter 9. It can't be a mere coincidence that after just having expressed great pity on the multitudes who were faint, and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd, that we're told he sends out his twelve ministers to uh, go strictly to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The people of Israel may not have viewed themselves as uh, lost sheep, but he, their shepherd and their king, he did. And it's very important to notice that it was the Jewish people that the kingdom was to be first announced he was their promised king, and it was their promised kingdom that was at hand. And this, by the way, was always the pattern also of the Apostle Paul. He went to the Jews first and only uh, went to the Gentiles after the Jews had rejected the message of their king. Uh, this was crucial to Paul's understanding of preaching the gospel message. 
He said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. Romans 1.16 But the call to us is different today. The commission that the Lord Jesus has given to us is, Go ye therefore and teach all nations. Matthew 28.19 But I wonder if one of the lessons we need to learn from this is that in the fulfillment of the Great Commission, we must not forget the Jewish people. Uh, They are the Lord's beloved chosen people, and He still loves them, and He still has a plan for them. And so He's told us to go and teach all nations. Now notice thirdly what they did. What they did. Matthew says that Jesus told them to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And then verse 7 he says, And as ye go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now the same message that John the Baptist preached in Matthew 3, 2, uh, is the same message that Jesus Christ himself preached in Matthew 4, 17. And now they were to preach that same message as well. They were to be going, and as they went... They were to preach the offer of the kingdom. But I want you to notice that preaching was not the only thing that they were going to do. He went on to say as part of their ministry, they were to, in verse 8, heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out devils, freely ye have received, freely give. They weren't just to walk around with a sandwich board uh, on their backs and a megaphone in their hands and they're screaming on the street corners in isolation from the needs of people. They were to make sure that their proclamation of the kingdom was one that touched lives in a very compassionate and a personal way. It was to be accompanied by the works of the ministry. They were to care for people just as Jesus did. Now you can imagine how if someone could heal the sick and cleanse the lepers and raise the dead and cast out demons, they would uh, uh, charge and would certainly receive a high price for such miracles. But Jesus taught them not to have that kind of an attitude. They were to remember that they themselves had freely received all that the Lord had given them and was yet to give them. And this would be the motivation for freely giving themselves. We too must freely give when we remember what has been freely given to us. Now again, the command to perform these miracles was something very specific to the apostles. They were the ones who were given this divine endowment, this divine power and authority. Only they could perform such a ministry. But there's still a lesson here for us. As we fulfill the commission we have received from the Lord, we need to do just as the apostles did, the foundational kingdom messengers. We need to make sure our preaching is not done just in words alone. It's also be done in the context of an active, personal, compassionate ministry of meeting people's needs. And as the apostle John said, who, by the way, was among the group of 12, he said, my little children... Let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and truth. You know, the lost and hurting people of this world are more inclined to believe the truth of the gospel 
when its preachers not only proclaim it to them as Jesus in Jesus' name, but actively minister to their needs in Jesus' power. Now notice a fourth thing that we see in these foundational messengers, how they were provided for. How they were provided for. Verse 9. Provide neither gold nor silver nor brass in your purses, nor script for your journey, neither two coats, neither shoes, nor yet staves, for the worker, workman is worthy of his meat. Now, what Jesus is doing here is he's urging them not to stock up, so to speak, supplies for themselves in their work of proclaiming the kingdom of their kinsmen Jews. And this, of course, isn't to say that they were not to provide anything uh, for themselves at all. They obviously would need a coat or a tunic, but they just weren't to bring two of them. Uh, they were to wear sandals, but they just were to, uh, they weren't to bring an extra pair. Uh, it was normal for a traveler to carry a walking stick, but just uh, to bring a staff, though, on which to carry burdens. And this may be in part to keep his kingdom workers from becoming overburdened with distracting matters. Paul said, No man warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him that chose, has chosen him to be a soldier. 2 Timothy 2.4 Now I want to stop preaching here and meddle for a little bit. How many of you have ever seen uh, TV shows like The Pickers? Anybody? A few of you. How about The Hoarders? And a few of those. Or Storage Wars? Well, if you, if you haven't seen them, you haven't missed much. But if you have seen them, you know what they're about. They're about, for instance, people going and finding people that have collected buildings and buildings and buildings full of all kinds of old things rusty things that are look like junk. And they pick them up and they say, how much you want for this? And they'll bicker back and forth a little bit and, and they'll come up with a price and they'll take it like it's the best treasure they've ever found. Or the hoarders, of course, is about people who just pile up things in their houses and they keep everything, even trash. And they're, they're disgusting places to look into. Or storage wars, about how people will bid upon a storage uh, uh, place that has just full of all kinds of things. They don't have no idea what's in it. They're just going to bid on it, and whatever they get, they get. Basically, that's what America's become in many ways. Many people have become. We've become people of stuff, people of possessions. Now, we all have to have possessions. I'm glad you had a nice a suit and dress and everything to wear to church today, y'all look great. We need those things. But how many do we need? Do we need closet and closet and closet and closet full? Uh, how many of those uh, uh, things do we need? And my question is this morning, do, pos uh, do we possess our possessions or do our possessions possess us? Many times we can just collect to ourselves so much stuff. Anybody going to take it to heaven with you? No. Uh, how many times, you know, I just went looking for something the other day. 
And I found something in a box stuffed away, and I thought, I've been looking for this, and I didn't know it was here. In fact, I'd already bought a new one to replace the old one. How many new things have we bought to replace the old things when we didn't know where they were because we had too much stuff? Here's the lesson, I think, that we're, we're seeing Jesus trying to teach his apostles was don't get so enamored with the things of this world that it, it keeps you from doing the work that Christ has given to you. And many times we get so piled up with our things uh, and we spend so much time collecting things uh, that we don't spend time proclaiming the message of the gospel. Now that's one thing I think that he had in mind. I think there's another reason Jesus went on to explain. He said, for the workman is worthy of his meat or food. The king in that, uh, that the apostles were proclaiming was the king of the Jews, and the kingdom that the apostles were announcing was the uh, uh, promised kingdom. It was to them that the offering was being made, uh, and all in accordance with the promises of God that were given them in their scriptures. It was the kingdom to the Jewish people and for the Jewish people, and it was to be proclaimed to the Jewish people by their Jewish brethren at the command of the Jewish Messiah. And so since it was, as we might say, an in-house operation, the Lord ordered the apostles that they had the right to, be, uh, to expect to be supported in their mission by the Jewish people themselves. Now it might even be that the receptivity of the uh, Jewish people to for the proclamation of the kingdom would be exhibited by their willingness to provide for the needs of those who had been commissioned to proclaim it. Uh, they were the workers of the kingdom, and those who were the subjects of the kingdom would be expected to support its workers. So how they were provided for, and these are some things that, that Jesus was teaching them, and I think there are lessons for us there as well. Now number five, with whom they stayed. Notice verse 11. And into whatsoever city or town ye shall enter, inquire who it is worthy, and there abide till ye go thence. Now this point is somewhat related to the previous one, of course. Travel in those days was dangerous. as very often that the inns that the traveler might stay in were not places that would be good for man or woman, uh, to, uh, a man or woman of God to be. It would be uh, appropriate for the kingdom preachers to expect to be given lodging during the mission, their mission in the home of those that welcomed their message. Uh, they weren't just to go into a town and go to the first place that offered them a place of, uh, of hospitality. Jesus told them to make inquiry into which household was worthy. I think unworthiness is exhibited elsewhere in the Bible by such things as blasphemy and openly opposing the apostolic preaching of the gospel, the rejecting of God's word, the refusing of the offer of eternal life. And therefore, I believe we should understand worthiness to be determined by a genuine uh, receiving of the message the apostles were proclaiming. And the apostles were not just to go to the nice house, the nicest well, uh, wealthy house, uh, they were simply to find those who were worthy. If a poor, humble family might prove to be worthy, more worthy than a, humble, uh, a wealthy one. And once they found the worthy household, they were to stay with them the whole time that they were in town. They weren't to go bouncing around from house to house, uh, trading up, as it were. Well, there, this, there is, of course, a principle here, I believe, that's suggested for us and that we should be ready to practice good Christian hospitality. 
as lovers of the Savior's cause toward those who are serving His cause faithfully, we become a crucial part of the work when we do so. Apparently, though, Jesus had let the disciples know, the apostles know, that not everyone who seems worthy at first actually proves to be worthy at the end. Because he look at verse 13, he says, And if a house be worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it be not worthy, let your peace return to you. Their blessing of peace was very important because it was truly peace that they were proclaiming. Jesus himself was the Prince of Peace. But if a household proved in the end to be unreceptive to the Savior, uh, the apostles proclaimed, then in the, in the end they proved hypocritical in their view of the presence of the workers, uh, and they thought maybe these workers were just a good luck charm, if you please, but they practiced no genuine faith or repentance, then the apostles were to view the blessing of peace as returning to them. Uh, this may be similar to the strong words that uh, Jesus spoke back in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 6. Give not that which is holy unto the dogs, neither cast ye your pearls before the swine, lest they trample them under their feet, and turn again and rend unto you. Maybe you remember the message entitled Dogs and Hogs, and we talked about that. Well, these are sobering words that lead us to one final thing that we notice here about these apostolic messengers. Number six, how they responded to rejection. How they responded to rejection. Verse 14. And whosoever shall not receive you, nor hear your words, when ye depart out of the house or city, shake off the dust of your feet. Verily I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Now as we know, not only from reading the scriptures, but also from hard experience, many people are going to be hostile to the message of Jesus Christ. Uh, I've seen this done. I don't believe Jesus meant... Uh, uh, to be uh, an angry, insulting expression of malice. Uh, rather, I believe Jesus meant uh, this to be a way that the apostles would say to their fellow Jews who rejected the message, you know, we've come to you in obedience of the king, and we've offered you an invitation to welcome his kingdom, but you've refused, you've rejected him. It's clearly you do not want to accept this offer, so according to your wish, we're going to go. We're not going to take anything. We're just going to leave you the dust off of our feet. It is, in a sense, a way of giving the kingdom rejecter what he wants. That is, your complete departure from him. But that departure is itself a form of judgment. In Luke chapter 11 and verse, or 10, verse 11, it says, uh, Jesus tells them to say, Even the very dust of your city, which cleaveth on us, we do wipe off against you. Notwithstanding, be sure of this, that the kingdom of God is Come nigh unto you. Paul the Apostle did a similar thing to the Jewish people in Corinth. When they opposed his preaching of the kingdom, uh, of the gospel in the synagogue, and blasphemed against the Savior, he took his garments and he said, And when they opposed themselves and blasphemed, he shook his raiment and said unto them, Your blood be on your heads, I am clean. From henceforth I will go unto the Gentiles. You see, it was a way of giving them what they wanted which itself is severe judgment from God. Sodom and Gomorrah here, its reference, of course, are the ancient cities uh, that were legendary for their sin, as every Jewish person would readily agree. And yet when the kingdom is offered to one of the Jewish people's own cities and they coldly reject it, forcing the proclaimers 
of that message to shake the dust of, off their feet and move on, then God will judge that city more severely than he would judge Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah would not hear the message of eternal life, but there were other cities that did and rejected it. You know, the apostles clearly proclaimed the message that the king had indeed come, and it was offered to the Jewish people. The final outcome wasn't up to those who faithfully proclaimed it. The people would either accept it or reject it, and the apostles left it to God to deal with the people, uh, the choice that the people made. And again, I believe there's a, a lesson for us here. We are to proclaim our Savior to the world around us, especially during the season in which His birth into this world is celebrated. We've just come uh, a month or so away from, from Christmas, and we, we need to uh, do that, but not just during Christmas, but all through the year. You know, uh, uh, all through the year, we, we celebrate the Lord's coming and the reason why He came. And yet, we often find the message we proclaim is fought against. It's fiercely opposed. In spite of that opposition, we are to faithfully proclaim the truth about Jesus Christ every opportunity the Lord sets before us. We must not try, however, to force people to accept it. I can't make anybody become a Christian. It's up to them. It's up to their choice to either accept it or reject it. And if they reject it, then they leave it. we're to leave them to their decision and let God deal with them. Now, I know this message has been mainly to those of us who are saved. But what if you're the one who has rejected the gospel? What if you're the one that uh, would not want to hear about Jesus coming to uh, give you life and life eternal. I don't know what your spiritual condition is this morning, but as we think about this as believers, and as we share the message of Christ, we ourselves are not to be offensive in the way we do. We'll also make sure that we are clearly and lovingly giving the message of the gospel, that if, any, uh, if they reject any of it, or they're rejecting the clear offer of gospel, let's make sure that we never accommodate the message or change it to try to avoid offending people. Let's make sure we're faithful and true in proclaiming the Savior. Some wonderful lessons here from the, the apostles. The instructions are specific for them. They were called to a specific ministry, but you and I have been called to a ministry of proclaiming as well. We've been sent. We've been sent uh, to those in our families and to those in our community. And uh, we're to be uh, uh, even responding in a correct way to those who would reject us. But let's trust God to use us for His honor and His glory as we become those messengers of the kingdom as well. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you for your calling of the twelve disciples to be apostles, to be your foundational proclaimers of your uh, message. We thank you, Lord, for the lessons that we can learn from these instructions that you gave them. And Lord, as we think about these instructions and how they would pertain to us and the lessons that we can learn, we pray, Lord, that we'll be faithful messengers as well. 
We pray, Lord, as you give us opportunity to be a, a blessing and a testimony to our family members, to our neighbors, to our co-workers, uh, to school uh, classmates, whatever position you've put, placed us in, Lord, we pray that we'll be faithful. And people are going to be offended. We know that, Lord. And yet, Lord, uh, you've given us even some instructions concerning that. Help us to be loving and kind and compassionate to the needs of people. And we pray, Lord, that as we do so, we depend upon your power and your authority to work in their lives to bring them to Christ. We pray for the salvation of men and women, boys and girls, in our community here. And we pray, Lord, that they too will come to receive the instruction from God's Word that each one of us needs to grow and to, to be busy about the, your work. And so we thank you, Lord, for the, the lessons that you've given to us this morning. And we pray that you'll help us to live for you, to dedicate ourselves to, to giving out the gospel and to letting people know that Jesus loves them and died for them and they can have eternal life as well. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.